1: And here's your need to know. Collusion crackdown. The EU fines BMW and Volkswagen for underutilizing emissions control technology. Clampdown contagion. China's scrutiny of overseas listings reportedly claims another victim. And Tokyo tribulations. The Olympics will take place under a state of emergency. It's Thursday. My teeth are back in. Let's make a move. of live TV. And warm welcome to all our first movers this Thursday as we count down to today's Wall Street opening bell. And also, this weekend's Euro football final between Italy and, yes, England. Call it perhaps the fettuccine versus fish and chips finale. Good job, England. Condolences, of course, to Denmark too. A strong performance. And with a great deal of luck, we'll go on to win in your honour. Now, from putty to the footsie. See what I did there. And other global stocks, investors dropping the ball today. Perhaps a little markets are weaker. The U.S. is set to fall. Well, as you can see, over 1%. It's consolidation, I think, to some degree, with stocks at record highs, but also some consternation feeding in here, too about the message being sent by the bond market and investors there. There's lots of defensive bond buying going on. Just take a look at the US 10 year note. Now that's a gauge of interest rates in 10 years time, just to give you a sense of what we're seeing. And that's, as you can see, fallen well below 1.3%. That's a five month low. And what it's suggesting is caution about the growth outlook. The risk, perhaps, that the Federal Reserve pulls support too fast amid a spreading Delta variant. Those challenges, of course, too, crystallized over in Japan, the government extending a Covid state of emergency in Tokyo through the end of the Olympic Games. We'll take you there to explain what that's going to mean for people and for the Games in practice. On the brighter side, meanwhile, the Chinese government saying, look, it's prepared to provide more support to the economy also an admission that growth there is slowing as exporters struggle, in particular with soaring commodity prices. The bottom line, the inflationary risks here are real. Taper talk is growing. The support, meanwhile, is going nowhere until we're ready. But it won't stop the worry. And that's what we're seeing. Let's get to the drivers. And we begin with what the EU calls a carmaker cartel. It hit BMW and Volkswagen with a billion-dollar fine for breaking antitrust rules. The commission says those companies and co-conspirator Daimler agreed not to compete on technology to reduce diesel emissions. Listen in.
2: For over five years, uh, the car manufacturers deliberately avoided to compete on cleaning better than what was required by EU emission standards and they did so despite the relevant technology being available. Uh, The law fixes minimum cleaning standards, which all producers will have to respect. But that still leaves ample room for manufacturers to compete on doing better
1: than the minimum required. Claire Sebastian joins us on this story. So the bottom line is they had the technology to do more in terms of emissions control, but they didn't have to because EU rules said they didn't have to and therefore they didn't. And they discussed it. And now the EU's tackling them. Put that in English for us, Claire.
3: <laughs> yeah, this is, as uh, the car makers have pointed out, pretty uncharted territory when it comes to, to antitrust and competition law. But but this relates to a statement of objections that was issued to the car makers back in 2019 related to talks that they allegedly held between 2006 and 2014, the so-called sort of Group of Five, uh, that includes Volkswagen with their subsidiaries Audi and Porsche, Daimler and BMW, technical talks. And during these talks, according to the EU Competition Commission, they allegedly discussed uh, several similar systems that were used to, to, to improve the cleanliness of exhaust in diesel and petrol cars. And they agreed, according to the to the EU, not to compete Uh, when it comes to those technologies in a way that would have led to their improvement. That is what they're alleging, Margarita Vestager says. In today's world, polluting less is an important characteristic of any car, and this cartel aimed at restricting competition on this key competition parameter. The car makers, though, Julia, uh, BMW and Volkswagen out today with statements they are not happy about this at all. Volkswagen saying it will appeal.
1: Yeah. What else are they saying, Claire? Because you use the phrase technical cooperation there is that like there's a fine line between technical cooperation and in some way colluding between you to decide not to utilise technology that you've developed and actually could more do more to help the environment. What else are they saying here?
3: Yeah, I should correct. Volkswagen saying it will consider uh, an appeal, but what they're saying is that that first of all, that both of them are saying that this is uncharted legal territory. This is a, a state part of the statement from Volkswagen. They're saying the commission is breaking new legal ground with this decision because it is, it is the first time it has prosecuted technical cooperation as an antitrust violation. It is also imposing fines even though the contents of the talks were never implemented and customers were therefore never harmed. A similar point was made by BMW. They are also saying that that when it comes to to the results of these talks, that any kind of collusion that might have happened never actually resulted in, in sort of related changes to the cars, that the systems they installed were still better than what was discussed in those talks, and therefore there was no consumer harm, essentially saying that the the, the, the sort of cartel didn't really work. So so an interesting defense in that regard, but but both of them agreeing, and and it's a very sensitive issue, Julia, of course, because of the emissions scandal in 2015 that, that Volkswagen still continues to grapple with the fallout of. The years in question overlap. With the years that the commission are talking about uh, in this, and BMW are interestingly explicitly distancing itself from that in its statement, saying this is this, it, there's no evidence that it ever used any defeat devices to reduce emissions. It says that, that even though some of its competitors did that, it has never been shown to have done that. So it's an extremely sensitive issue for the car makers and also for the EU as it tries to to, to reduce its emissions from its car makers. And this is such a great
1: point. I just wonder whether, but whether for the car makers, but also for the EU, this does feel very legacy. To your point, and it refers to 2006 to the 2014 period, and we seem to be seeing all these car makers falling over themselves to announce, "Look, we're going electric by this date. We're going to be fully electric by that date." Um, I just wonder whether it refers to a legacy period, but it well and truly suggests that the EU is honing in on cleaner technologies. And we're going to talk about that later on in the show too. Claire, great to have you with us for the context there. Claire Sebastian, as I mentioned, just one part, tackling car emissions of the EU's ambitious Green Deal to fight global climate change. And we're going to be joined by the European Commission Vice President Franz Timmermans in just a few moments to discuss this and much more. All right, let's move on. China's crackdown on tech is clearly far from over. The central bank is promising more regulation for payments companies. Add to that reports that one Chinese firm is shelving its IPO in the United States. Paul Lamonica joins us on this. It's just rumours at this stage, Paul. Great to have you with us. But it's a company that's being rumoured called LinkDoc and they are a Chinese medical data group. I mean, you only have to mention what they do to realise that they are well and truly in the crossfire, whether they're choosing to delay or not. Wowzers.
4: Yeah, there are multiple reports out there this morning suggesting that LinkDoc will be delaying its U.S. IPO, and uh, we're waiting for confirmation. But it isn't a huge surprise, I think, Julia, that this would be happening, given all of the drama about what has happened with Didi's stock since dd listed just a week ago it seems like uh, eons ago now given how rapidly the move uh, the news has uh, been uh, you know progressing with uh, with this company right now i think that there are going to be legitimate concerns about whether china will really want companies in you know mainland china to be listing on the us when they have you know potentially uh, a much closer option to home with hong kong
1: Perfectly teased because we were having this debate on the show yesterday that it suddenly puts Hong Kong in the spotlight and the importance of Hong Kong as a conduit for financial flows between China and the West, but in particular the United States. Step forward the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, Paul making it easier to IPO.
4: Exactly. And I think that's what a lot of Chinese tech companies really wanted to see. You've had this somewhat arcane process where, you know, a company would price its shares and then it would take up to five days to a week before the stock would actually start trading. Hong Kong taking steps to shorten that window so the time between pricing and listing happens a lot more quickly. And I think you're starting to see... Chinese companies that have already started to trade here in the US are gonna be looking at a dual listing in Hong Kong. We've already had that with uh, Xpeng yesterday, a big Chinese electric vehicle company that has a US listed stock. Now they're listing in Hong Kong as well. Wouldn't be a surprise at all, Julia, if you see more Chinese uh, headquartered firms that are already listing either on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, look to dual list on Hong Kong as well. And companies that haven't listed at all yet might just choose Hong Kong over the U.S.
1: Yes, it's important, therefore, to preserve some degree of a financial flow independence in Hong Kong, if nothing else, if that indeed is the case. Interesting undercurrents here going on. Paula Monica, thank you very much for that. No fans in the stands. In just the last few moments, we learned the Tokyo Games will not have even domestic spectators because of the COVID crisis. The prime minister declared the fourth state of emergency in Tokyo through the end of the summer games. Selena Wang is live in Tokyo with that breaking news for us now confirmed. Selena better safe rather than sorry. I think that's the message here. Talk us through it.
5: Right, Julie, and remember, for months now, you even have Japan's top COVID-19 advisor who recommended these games be held without any spectators. Now we are getting confirmation that at least in these Tokyo venues, all spectators will be barred. Overseas fans have already been banned. We've known this information for quite some time now, but now even local fans will be barred. There are press conferences coming up in the coming hours when we'll get more details about whether or not some VIP special guests will be allowed at some of the big top events like the opening and closing ceremonies. But, Julia, we've talked about this before, about just how big of a blow this is for Japan. They have spent more than $15 billion on these games. They are not going to get any of that economic boost they were expecting, not even from their local tourists. But right now, there is still a lot of anxiety running high here in Japan. I was just at a protest that was here in Shinjuku, just wrapped up a few hours ago. They were protesting the Olympics. They were protesting the arrival of the head of the IOC, Thomas Bach, who they say represents corporate greed and what they see as the IOC plowing ahead with these games for their own profit. The people are angry that these games are still going to go ahead even amid a state of emergency,
1: Julia. I mean, I've got many questions on the back of that. I mean, I wonder what this means for the the opening ceremony too—the big showcase that these nations that host the Olympic Games enjoy so much as a way to flag bear, I think, for their nations. Do we know anything about the opening ceremony? And also, Selena, just tie this to the data that we're seeing. I mean, we've been saying, and you and I, and you said it there—it sort of makes sense based on the data that we're seeing to to go the safe route here. Talk us through just the latest data.
5: Well, Julia, the five-party meeting talks, we should be finding out soon more details about the opening and closing ceremonies. It is possible that some Special Olympic delegations, VIP guests will be allowed at that opening ceremony, but we'll just have to wait and see. A huge disappointment for Japan. They spent more than a billion dollars renovating that national stadium, that is where the opening and closing ceremonies are going to be held. And when it comes to the COVID situation here in Japan, as you say, medical experts say it just wouldn't make sense. COVID cases are surging again here in Tokyo, reaching more than 900 cases on Wednesday. That's the highest level in months. Medical experts continue to warn against holding the games at all. And when it comes to the vaccination situation here in Japan, the rate was starting to pick up, but a lot of the prefectures here are still facing logistical challenges. At this moment, just 15% of the population here has been fully vaccinated. Another big concern is the Delta variant as well. Even the Prime Minister announcing that more of these cases here in Tokyo are being driven by the Delta variant, a key concern for these Games moving forward, Julia.
1: Yeah, cases too high, vaccinations too low. Selena Wang with the breaking news there. No spectators at the Olympic Games. Thank you very much for that. All right, so to come here on First Move, a not-so-dirty 2030. The EU says its carbon emissions will be 55% lower by the next decade. The EU's Green Policy Chief tells us how it's going to be achieved. And Volvo plans to help with that. So the car maker races to meet its goal of an all-electric range by that same year. We've got the CEO also on the show. Stay with us. More to come. First Move with some a look at the stories making headlines around the world. We begin with new developments in the shocking assassination of the president of Haiti. The country's ambassador to the U.S. says police have killed four suspects and arrested two others. We have audio purportedly from around the time of the killing. CNN cannot independently confirm the authenticity of the audio or video, but the American-sounding accent is from someone claiming to be from the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency. Let's bring in CNN's Matt Rivers, who's monitoring uh, monitoring the situation for us from Miami. Matt, great to have you with us. I believe uh, the latest is a number of suspects have been killed, two arrested, and the belief is that some are still at large. What more can you tell us, and is that information correct?
6: Yeah, that information is the latest that we have as of right now, Julia. I mean, this, this assassination and, and who is behind it remains just a huge mystery in terms of, of exactly what is behind all of this. Not the least of which is because of that video that you just played, or the audio rather, where you can clearly hear an American accent, somebody claiming that this is a DEA operation. Now. The Haitian government and the United States government both say that it wasn't actually DEA agents involved in all of this. Rather, the Haitian government says these were highly trained mercenaries, in their words, posing as DEA agents, uh, perhaps as a way to get access in some way to the presidential residence, which is normally a very heavily guarded uh, compound. Uh, But it wasn't just the president that was injured, and obviously the president was assassinated here. His wife, the first lady of Haiti, is in this hospital behind me here in Miami. She was medevaced with very serious injuries from Haiti here to Miami to receive treatment. She's in a critical but stable condition, that we're told. Now, in terms of the investigation, as this is ongoing, four suspects, as you mentioned, have been killed, uh, and two have been detained. That's six in total, but Haiti's ambassador to the United States told CNN earlier today uh, that They believe that there are more suspects out there. They also believe that all six people that are involved in this, uh, they are foreign nationals. The, The four detained, or the two detained and the four killed, they're all foreign nationals. They're not saying what nationality those people are, but that adds just a different level of mystery to all of this. And we're so far away from getting answers. Why was the president assassinated? Who was behind it? Who financed it? How were these people able to enter the presidential residence, which normally is very heavily guarded? Uh, There's even, I mean, there's just so many questions that we don't have answers to yet, Julia. We're, of course, going to be monitoring uh, this situation and trying to bring our viewers those answers. But for now, this is uh, just a, a, a real mystery after this brutal assassination.
1: Plenty of questions. Matt Rivers, thank you for the update on that there. OK, let's move on. Former South African President Jacob Zuma has handed himself over to police to serve a 15-month prison sentence for contempt of court, authorities say. The order from the Constitutional Court stems from Zuma's refusal to answer question about his alleged involvement in corruption during his time as president. Okay, let's bring it back to the markets now. And risky business means it's a risk-off day for global stock markets and beyond. We're looking at a drop of well over 1% for the U.S. majors, losses of more than 2%, I can see there, in Europe. Reflation stocks like banks and oil firms that do well when economies expand, are among today's big losers on new fears that global growth is slowing, even as pricing pressures build. That's called secular stagnation. And it's a nasty combination, as you can see, for investors. US bond yields, which of course were soaring earlier this year on the strong economic vaccination room and rebound, continue to give back much of their 2021 gains, a reflection of ongoing economic uncertainty uncertainties. In the meantime, China admitting today that its central bank may have to do more to help support its slowing economy. And we remain in China where the messaging app WeChat has deleted more than a dozen LGBTQ accounts. The move has sparked fears of a crackdown on China's gay and transgender community. David Colvert joins us now. David, great to have you with us and good that you're looking at this story in particular. I had to sort of look at what the standards are with regards China's treatment of homosexuality in China and I believe that it was decriminalised in, in 1997. Why this and why now? What have you found?
2: You're right. And in 2001, Julia, it was taken off the official list of mental disorders. That being said, while publicly China has displayed a very accepting stance and even shown to the United Nations that they are against any discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity, at home it's been a different story. And to your point, it was shocking for a lot of these groups, mostly at universities, as they awoke Wednesday morning to find that their pages had been shuttered, and it comes as China has faced now multiple allegations of human rights abuses, and this really puts mounting pressure on this country ahead of what is going to be a huge event, the Beijing 2022 Olympics. A sweeping crackdown on China's popular social media and messaging app WeChat. The target, LGBTQ and feminist college groups. Dozens of organizations say their public pages were banned Tuesday, now labeled as untitled accounts. An outcry online from some of those impacted.
6: Am I living in 2021? I'm LGBT. I just want to know whom have I bothered for just living my life?
5: I'm shaking. Why did they do this?
6: Nobody is free until everybody
4: is free
7: i would be lying if I said I wasn't sad.
2: CNN connected with one LGBTQ group member from a Beijing university whose organization's WeChat page got banned. All its past content erased.
7: In recent years, our goal is to simply survive, to continue to be able to serve LGBT students and provide them with warmth. We basically don't engage in any radical advocating anymore.
2: She asked, we call her Kathy and not use her real name, fearful of facing retaliation for adding her voice to this story. Online, a nationalistic narrative and backlash already surfacing, some baselessly claiming that the group's pages got shut down because they were infiltrated by foreign
7: forces. The LGBT community has long existed in China, not because of any influence from so-called foreign forces. It's completely ridiculous. Those saying that do not understand the LGBT community at all. They have no intention to know about it.
2: Publicly, China has portrayed a tolerant image of LGBTQ rights, expressing to the United Nations an opposition to discrimination and violence based on sexual orientation and gender identity. But at home, a different story. What we have instead is a increasing tightening of the space um, for the LGBT community and uh, LGBT advocates. CNN's reported on China's crackdown on LGBTQ rights in recent years, from censoring gay content seen as abnormal sexual relationships and behaviors on streaming platforms and TV shows, to bringing an abrupt end last year to the longest running annual celebration of sexual minorities, Shanghai Pride, and now a closing of this social safe space in China's cyberspace. It was sad to see them deplatformed in that way because they often uh, can be a real lifeline to uh, other LGBT students. WeChat sent this message to those pages shut down. After receiving relevant complaints, all content has been blocked and the account has been put out of service. But those impacted wanted more clarity on the exact violation. CNN reached out to Tencent, WeChat's parent company. We've not yet heard back. Kathy, still hopeful her organization's work, can find a new way to reach young people.
7: I think the future LGBT movement in colleges is very important. Many people may suffer depression because of their gender identity confusion. So I always think to educate on multi-gender identities in college is important.
2: While same-sex marriage is not legal here in China, we should point out there are no laws against homosexuality. And we should also point out, Julia, that a lot of the activists and experts we've spoken with say that this is concerning because it feels like this is a trend based on several data points, incidences, if you will, that have pointed towards the negative when it comes to opening up and being more accepting.
1: Yeah. To that person that said, am I living in 2021? You are, but it just matters. It seems where you live. David Culver, thank you so much for that report there. Thanks. OK, to Indonesia now, where the nation is expanding coronavirus restrictions after reporting record number of cases and deaths over the past week. Many hospitals are now so overwhelmed, patients are being asked to provide their own oxygen tanks. CNN's Paula Hancock's reports.
8: It is a grim view, a rush to dig fresh graves in West Java, Indonesia, trying to keep up with a record number of COVID-19 deaths. As one body is laid to rest, no funeral or grieving relatives allowed, another waits in the back of an ambulance. In Jakarta, ambulances queue in an ever-growing graveyard as cranes dig final resting places faster than human hands. One disconcerting reality here, many of the victims are children. Save the Children estimates one in eight confirmed cases are below the age of 18 and more than 600 are believed to have died.
0: It's hidden victim,
9: yeah? Of this crisis, they've been out of school for over a year. The families are losing their incomes, uh, but now they are not hidden anymore uh, because now a lot of deaths uh, is 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 affecting them,
6: and many more are being infected.
8: Chang Mei Lin thought she was safe, among the first in Indonesia to be fully vaccinated, as she suffers from diabetes. But on June 23rd, she started coughing and spiked a fever. Within four days, she was unconscious. Her children called an ambulance, but the line was constantly busy. They hired a private van to take her to eight hospitals, but they all refused her.
7: I called around 52 hospitals in Jakarta and also another region like Tangerang and also Bogor. But they say that uh, they are full. They don't have oxygen also.
8: Finally, her daughter found a private hospital who accepted her as long as she provided her own oxygen. Turning to social media, she eventually found a donor and carried a 15 kilogram canister to the hospital herself. Her mother is not yet stable, but at least she's in hospital.
7: It's very full. All of their tent uh, is full. And even in my mom's hospital, they are patient on the road because they don't have
8: uh, a room. Trucks line up to get more oxygen for hospitals and clinics, Worried relatives bring individual canisters in the hope of giving loved ones a lifeline. One man says, I joined the queue six hours ago to help a relative who's ill. This man says, I've been queuing for five hours. I need to refill two tanks for my mother who is ill at home.
0: We are targeting 100% of production of oxygen in Indonesia to be utilised for medical usage. It means all oxygen
4: for industrial usage will be switched over for medical usage.
8: The government says they're preparing more than 7,000 extra hospital beds to try and ease the strain. It's
4: not that we don't want to serve the patients to the best of our ability, but our health workers are exhausted and are falling sick.
8: More than 1,100 medical staff have died so far in this pandemic. This was one hospital last week. Patients waiting in corridors for medical attention. The hospital claims things are improving, But the daily number of cases continues to break records and families struggle to find a hospital that will take their loved ones. As her window waits for good news from her mother, her father and brother have now also tested positive. Paula Hancock's
1: CNN. And our hearts with all those people impacted there and of course around the world. Stay with us. More to come. You're watching First Move. Welcome back to First Move. Let's bring you up to speed with the action on Wall Street. As expected, a weaker start to the trading day this Thursday. A nasty July squall after a blistering summer rally. Normal, perhaps, with markets hitting persistent record highs. Consolidation is the word we always use, but also a reflection, I think, of investor concern that global growth could soften from here. New data today shows U.S. jobless claims rising a little bit last week. Still, of course, near pandemic lows. But It's coming as a fresh U.S. fiscal cliff is looming this September with enhanced jobless benefits set to expire for those states that haven't already ended them. An inopportune time as rising gasoline prices eat into consumer spending power too. Central banks all watching this very closely do not expect them, I think, to make any sudden moves that would jolt investors. Add to that the European Central Bank today taking a page from Patient Powell's playbook vowing to overshoot its inflation targets if necessary to better attain economic stability and fresh signs it will remain accommodative for as long as required. In the meantime, one of our top stories today, the EU commission fining two German auto giants $1 billion for limiting the development and rollout of car emission control systems in a first of a kind ruling. The EU well and truly setting the tone ahead of announcing its big EU green deal next week. Its most ambitious attempt yet to tackle climate change. It comes as the EU's climate envoy tours Asian nations like South Korea and Singapore to coordinate support and prepare ahead of COP26, the UN's climate change conference coming in November. And joining us now is European Commission Vice President Franz Timmermans, and he joins us from that tour currently in Singapore. Sir, fantastic to have you on the show. You're certainly, I think, touring nations that are equally committed to tackling climate change despite the broader challenges that we face with the the COVID crisis. What's your takeaway as we count down to COP26? What does success look like in your mind?
9: Well, what we have to achieve is that we um, uh, achieve the climate targets we've set in Paris. So well below two degrees, um, keep our eye on 1.5 degrees, um, because if we don't, The climate crisis will get out of control and i'm really really encouraged by what i've heard the last couple of days both here in singapore and in south korea Uh, two nations prepared to do what is needed uh, to reach climate neutrality so uh, together i think we can really make a difference
1: you know there will be people watching this saying look if you're touring asian nations if you're not speaking to india if you're not speaking to china then you're effectively leading the charge towards a cleaner climate with at least one if not two hands tied behind your back. So what's your response to that?
9: Well we are talking to India. I spoke to the Indian minister uh, last week. We are talking to China. I spoke to the Chinese envoy Mr. Scheer also last week. Uh, The only problem is traveling to those countries is extremely difficult at this stage because of the pandemic. But we're in constant touch with our partners and you're absolutely right. If we really want to get where we need to be, we need China and India on board.
1: And you think they're committed, equally committed to nations like well, some of the European nations and, and the Commission itself?
9: Well, I think uh, the, the fact that President Xi Jinping has announced China would reach uh, carbon neutrality by 2060 is encouraging. Now we have to see what that means in concrete measures Uh, between now and 2060. Like the EU, we have said clearly where we want to be in 2030. We hope our partners can make um, uh, comparable commitments. Before the meeting in Glasgow, they will have to show what their national determined contributions are to our common effort. Um, And uh, I think working together with them, like uh, uh, we did in Paris, can actually help us uh, reach our goals. And it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy for anyone. The European Union will see this next week when we present our proposals for our so-called 55 um, uh, uh, plans, uh, it's hard on everyone. But if we do it in a way that everybody falls, uh, falls on the same side of the, of the rope, uh, I think we can get there. We can get there. And at the end of this transformation, our economy will look a, a, a lot better and we can get the climate crisis under control. And that's That's the whole point.
1: And for those that uh, may not know, 55 or fit for 55, it sounds like a fitness plan. It's not a 55 percent reduction in emissions by 2030. There are rumours, though, that some within the commission would like that to be 60 percent reduction in emissions. And actually that the EU could be targeting uh, net zero or zero emissions by by 2035. So even a 15 year um, sort of acceleration on what we're talking about now. Does that make any sense or is that too ambitious at this stage?
9: No, it doesn't. It doesn't. You will see next week when we present our plans how hard it is to get to a reduction of at least 55 percent by 2030. So many measures have to be increased on car emissions, on the emissions trading system, on our transition to sustainable fuels, etc. It's going to be really hard to do that uh, between now and 2030. Uh, Increasing that ambition would push us over the edge. We couldn't do that uh, possibly. And by the way doing this. And if the international community moves in the same direction, it does help us stay within the targets we set in Paris.
1: You know, it's interesting. Um, I was looking at some of the reviews of the sort of reports of what we're expecting next week. and, And one of the points was made was that transport represents around a quarter of greenhouse gases in the EU. And I know Cars in particular and trying to lower the cost of electric cars, increase accessibility to electric cars is one of the huge focuses. What can you talk to me about that, particularly in light of what we saw today and the fine for two big European car makers over emission controls? Is that legacy? And have they sort of got with the mindset now that cleaner is better and we have to do it faster?
9: You know, I I am really amazed by the turnaround of the car industry worldwide. Um, They know they need to go to zero emission uh, cars. They know they need to go to battery electric cars, to hydrogen uh, fuel cell cars. And they're moving quickly in that direction. So we don't need to convince them uh, of this anymore. It's the pace they worry about. They think we might be pushing them a bit too hard. But I mean, if I compare this with, let's say, two years ago, uh, they really, really understood that there is no future for an internal combustion engine. So um, because electric uh, cars are cheaper to run already and within five, six, seven years, they'll be cheaper to buy as well. So that's the future. And the car industry is now fully embracing that future.
1: You know, it's fascinating. I saw some stats that said that electric vehicles made up around 11% of new EU car registrations in 2020. That statistic actually blew my mind. So the movement from consumers is, is clearly there. But I wonder about poorer nations, whether we're talking about cars or anything else. It's expensive. The transition costs are huge here. How do you do this equitably? And we can stick with cars just as an example, because I believe that France, the Netherlands and Germany host 70% of all car charging points. Even just that statistic shows you the challenges for some of the less wealthy nations in the EU in transitioning to electric cars. What more can the EU itself do to help facilitate, to subsidise perhaps?
9: Well, first of all, we've uh, discussed with all member states in their recovery plans to include charging capacity across the European Union. So this is also what the car industry is asking of us. Give us the charging capacity, then we can sell uh, uh, electric vehicles. So we will roll out a lot of extra charging capacity across the European Union. Then we have to make sure that we remove first the dirtiest car from the European markets. Because even if, if, let's suppose that somewhere around 2035, only electric vehicles will be built in Europe. You still have a huge legacy of existing internal combustion engine cars, and you need to make them as clean as possible. So you need to remove remove dirtiest cars as fast as possible from the market. That will reduce the price of secondhand cars uh, moving towards uh, hybrid cars, and eventually um, electric cars will become available for everyone. But it, it is it, it is a quite a huge um, a challenge to all of us because many people, especially... In the poorer member states, but also across society in the rest of Europe, never pay much more than let's say three, four thousand euros for a car, and to tell them to, that they would have to buy a new car it's just too much. So we have to give them an opportunity to transit towards cleaner cars first, and eventually everyone will uh, um, be uh, um, will be allowed, or not allowed, but will be able, I have to say, to buy to buy an electric vehicle.
1: Uh, I think you're going to receive a little bit of pushback, but I can't wait to see the report next week. Um, and I tell you what, if energy oh, we'll and get enthusiasm. Massive pushback. We'll get
5: massive. <laughs>
1: tell me. Sorry, say it. No,
9: we, we get, we'll get massive pushback. I mean, any <laughs> fundamental transition uh, will give us a lot of pushback.
1: Yeah, it doesn't change the, the requirement and the need, though. And um, I was going to say, if enthusiasm is going to get us to the finish line, so you have it. Great to chat to us and please come back and talk to us soon. Um, fantastic to talk to you. Franz Timmermans, oh, sir, nice. Vice President of the European Commission and Safe Journey Home, sir. Thank you. Thank you. All right. After the break, sticking with the green theme and some electrifying news from Volvo, the CEO of the car company is here talking about his plans to leave fossil fuels in the dust. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and take a look at Volvo's vision of the future. The Swedish automaker wants an all-electric range by 2030 with this concept car pointing the way. I'm not sure if those fancy doors will make it into production, though. Ouch. The CEO says the post-pandemic world should be a greener one. And that's why Volvo's committed itself to the EU's Green Alliance for a climate neutral economy. Håkon Samuelsson is the CEO of Volvo Car Group, and he joins us now. Sir, fantastic to have you on the show. We'll talk about the commitment and, of course, your commitment to electric vehicles by 2030. But let's talk about the car. What do we need to understand about this as a banner, I think, for your electric vehicle ambitions?
10: I think it gives you an idea how uh, future Volvos will look like. A bit more streamlined, uh, uh, fully electric, of course, and, and full of uh, a new functionality, more software and more electronics. Safer also because we'll have LiDAR technology, but still a very practical car with a lot of room for, for families.
1: But we don't get the doors. They're quite futuristic.
10: Yeah, uh, they on concept cars they are always like that. So maybe in reality <laughs> we go back to a more conventional. I have to reveal that.
1: It's safety but first.
10: Otherwise I think it oh. looks looks like the uh, future of Volvo.
1: How soon in the future might a car like this be on the road and, and what kind of price? Because it is, as you said, pointing to the future where you've said, look, we're gonna be fully electric by by twenty thirty, and that's ambitious.
10: Yes. I think a car like that, uh, this will not be our first Volvo, the very first in our new generation all electric will be end of 22. This one, 24-25, something like that uh, will come out.
1: You know, one of the most exciting things about what you're working towards is the next generation of technology. And I know you're working with um, a Swedish firm called Northvolt to tackle next generation batteries as well, including, I think, a thousand kilometre range in terms of charging and also reducing the amount of charging time for upon which it goes from 10% to 80% charged. Can you talk to me about this? Because I think for many people that still look at electric vehicles as being limited simply by charging technology and by how far they can go on a charge, this would be mm-hmm. transformative too. Mm.
10: No, that's exactly what I think you, you need to improve. I mean, you need to be able to go as far as you can with the fuel, with the normal car, with the fuel tank with around 50-60 litres, that's what typically you have. So you come there close to a thousand kilometres, I think, then it would be work like a normal car. And, and then, of course, you don't want to stand much longer at the charging point than you do fueling up a car, so it has to be faster. So so here you go to technology, shortening charging time, and then, of course, having more energy in the batteries. and to be able to do that uh, for us as a car maker we cannot just rely on buying a battery as some kind of commodity we need to understand it much more so so we need uh, to acquire core competence around chemistry and and uh, battery technology exactly as we do today when it comes to the combustion engine so And then we need a more deeper partnership with uh, somebody who who is ready to share and develop this with us. And uh, that's what we have uh, defined that with Northvolt.
1: You know, the beauty of Volvo is that you have customers all around the world. You also have a a Chinese parent. But we were just talking to the EU's climate envoy about their green alliance and the green deal that they're going to announce next week. And I made the point that 70 percent of charging stations are in France, Germany and the Netherlands in the EU. As you look ahead to what that announcement involves, particularly for the car makers and for yourselves, what do you need in terms of support and engagement from nation states in order to foster and ab- enable consumers to, to buy these electric vehicles?
10: Yeah. It has to be a heavily investment in charging network yeah. in parallel here. So it's sort of a hen and egg. I mean, without cars there will be no charging but without charging post it will be impossible to sell cars so Mm. here we really have to team up and say okay let's make a program to invest in charging and and we will concentrate on the cars so i think it's very important with very clear signals here that uh, we are going into an electric future and and that's why also we have stated by 2030 we will be all electric Hopefully that encourages people to invest in in more charging because uh, we need partners who do that for us.
1: Good. So at least I was asking him the right questions then. That's a a comfort to me. Um, I mentioned as well your your Chinese parent. I also know that Volvo's working with uh, Didi as well on autonomous vehicle technology, which is something that they're very engaged in. I just wondered if you had any views on the current challenges that we're seeing and the shifts that we're seeing in China with regards to these kind of companies. Does that give you any any concern about your your commitment with this partnership?
10: Uh, not uh, really, but the, the latest development really was also a surprise for us. But the cooperation with Didis, basically, we will supply to them basic cars, but the electronics and the the autonomous drive uh, functionality, they will put into a sort of uh, electronic driver, which uh, they will be responsible for. So I, I don't think uh, that uh, cooperation is anyway. way influence but what has happened with the with their company right now
1: yeah so the hardware is immune we hope
10: yeah. Well, yeah Hopefully.
1: sir fantastic to chat to you thank you so much excited to test drive that vehicle when it uh, when it comes on the road watch this space yeah thank looking you looking
10: forward of your feedback
1: <laughs> uh-huh, for great me. we'll reconvene Correct. the ceo of Volvo thank car you. group there said thank you all right after the break got a taste for diamonds and a pile of Bitcoin? Well, Sotheby's the auctioneers say step right up. A crystal for crypto. Next. Welcome back with the final first move. Look at the price action today. The US majors pulling back sharply on global growth concerns. Tech, the big loser after hitting fresh record highs on Wednesday. Consolidation, I'll say it again, banks and energy stocks getting hit the hardest at this moment. And Diddy Global shares down. An additional 7% of investors increasingly underwater on that one. It is a nasty pullback today, but let's give you some perspective on that. The S&P 500 is still up more than one and a half percent this past month alone. Technology stocks up more than four percent. All right, to one of my favorite stories of the day in Hong Kong. The auctioneer Sotheby's will today sell a rare, flawless diamond of at least 100 carats. In a price range of 10 to $15 million, that is news in itself. But possibly the bigger news, they'll take payment in crypto if you have it. Bitcoin or Ethereum are fine, as well as, of course, old-fashioned cash. Wow, beautiful pear-shaped diamond there. And finally... On first move, pity the red London bus that became the centre of attention for ecstatic England fans after their 2-1 victory against Denmark in the Euro 2020 quarterfinals. Wow, there's a London telephone box there as well. Good luck making a call from that. This is the first time England has reached a major final since 1966. England now go on to face Italy in the final on Sunday. And best of luck to both countries. But as I've said before... More luck to England. We'll probably need it. And that's it for the show. Sorry, I'm saying it and it's true. Stay safe. Connect the World is next and I'll see you tomorrow. Have a good day or evening wherever you are in the world.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night.